All right, welcome back, everyone, out there to another episode of Pandemic Check-In. Um, Pandemic Check-In is the show where we check in with you. Uh, we have a line that you can call and text and leave us messages, and we check in with the fine, fine psychologists and psychiatrists and mental health professionals at Brooklyn Minds, the groundbreaking mental health practice in Brooklyn, New York, and Manhattan. Um, no, normally, I introduce you guys, but I'll let you guys, well, how about we switch it around a little bit? I'll let you guys introduce yourselves today. Hi, I'm Willow Say. I'm a postdoctoral fellow at Brooklyn Minds um, in psychology. I'm glad to be here today. I'm Rebecca Sinclair. I'm a psychologist and the director of psychological services at Brooklyn Minds and doing all right today. What do you guys, like psychologists, uh, they have like, do, do psychologists have like specialties, like specific things that they work on, like like a doctor would be specialized in like the heart or the lungs or something like that? Is the same true for psychologists? Yes, and I think um, there are a lot of psychologists who specialize in certain things. Uh, you know, for example, I'm trained as a child psychologist, so I do have that part of the specialty. And then I have uh, special areas of interest of things that I tend to treat. So I specialize in OCD and anxiety disorders and a lot of things that relate to that. Um, and so some psychologists kind of work more in general um, emotion regulation, general helping people figure out, and some people specialize. So it's kind of a mixed bag in that way. And I'll let Will talk about his um, special interests as well. And Will, you're just, you're kind of just a newly minted psychologist, right? Is that, is that right? Yeah, absolutely. I'm fresh. I think uh, <laughs> I graduated in May, technically. So okay. it's very interesting. And so how does it work with people who are becoming psychologists? Like, do you have a specialty already chosen that you've been studying? Or is it something that you kind of figure out as you're doing internships, like a doctor would do something like that? That's a little bit of both. I think um, the way kind of graduate school is for psychology is different programs kind of specialize in different things. Okay. So like my program, for example, was very much specialized on producing more generalist, but then also we had a real interest in diversity and multicultural issues. So that was something that we kind of specialized in. And so then now you're, what's, what's the process now that you've graduated? Like, are you a psychologist or is there like another process you have to go through? Like a doctor has to go through a residency or something? Yeah, amazingly, like every time I think I've done something, there's something else. So <laughs> that's basically what the postdoctoral um, fellow part means. It means that I have another year of uh, actually being supervised by Rebecca um, before I am fully licensed and be allowed to like practice completely on my own. Uh, got it. So even though Rebecca is your boss, we can trust that there'll be unfiltered information here that you're really going to speak your mind, right? <laughs> Yes. Uh, she doesn't scare me. You better. <laughs> you better speak your mind. That's it, will I say. <laughs> um, joking, like, thank you for that explanation. That was interesting. I didn't know how, how that stuff works. Um, so, so you guys have been meeting with patients this week. It's kind of like, you know, we're in this space now with the news where, like, things are kind of getting... I feel, I feel like we're, like, on, on a teeter-totter and, like, like one day the good news is kind of winning and then the next day the bad news is kind of winning. And it felt like like yesterday and maybe the day before and then today, like maybe the bad news is winning. How are you guys feeling? What are your patients telling you? Yeah, I think there's a sense of unease in the air because even when there's when there's good news days, when the good news is kind of tipping the scales, I feel like there's a sense from folks that they're waiting for the other shoe to drop. Um, and I think that's part of the kind of cr collective chronic stress we've been going through is that our, our brains and bodies are kind of primed to be looking for the next threat, looking for the next thing that's coming up. So I think it's been very hard, even when there are 
positive steps for people to relax into them or to find joy in them. Um, And I've been having a lot of discussions with clients about whether or not that's a good thing or a bad thing. And I think there's a little bit of both. Um, Because on the one hand, it's really hard to not have a break from the stress. And on the other hand, people are talking about not wanting to fall into patterns of complacency either. Hmm. Yeah, interesting. I've I've certainly... Like I said, we're kind of on this teeter-totter. And I remember like a few, like maybe a month ago, looking at all the states that were opening up a lot faster than California and being like, oh, they're opening up and things don't seem to be going that poorly for them. There aren't that many more people getting sick. And kind of having like, I mean, look, I'm an imperfect person. Schadenfreude is like one of the things that flows through my blood. And looking at these states and being like, oh, they're going to get theirs one day. They're going to get it. You know, you Florida, Texas, and now they're getting it. And I have to say, I don't feel good about that at all. I feel like it's really, really terrible. And I feel bad for wanting them to get it. And now it's just awful. I wonder if any of that is also because we were, we're, you know, Ben, you're in California. Uh, me and Will are here in New York. We were in some early hard hit states. And so I wonder if it's not just schadenfreude, but also wanting people to understand what we had gone through at the beginning and, and not wanting people to get sick, but wanting that kind of sense of empathy from other people too. I, I think that's um, maybe what a more enlightened person would feel, but that's not what I was, <laughs> not what I, was feeling. <laughs> I tried to throw you a rope <laughs> no, I appreciate there. that. I appreciate that, but it's not. Uh, Will, how about you? What are you, what are you, how are you feeling? What are the people you're talking to talking about? You know, I think like um, on the other hand, maybe it complements what Becca was saying was there's also like this sense of numbness. It's like literally I saw somebody like just like make up a, a fake tweet about like something ridiculous. And I totally believed it. And like the, the last line was like, you believed it, didn't you? And I'm like, yeah, I did. Because at this point, it's like I'm so numb to it that you could tell me like aliens land on the White House lawn and not have to go online to check because I could almost believe it at this point, which is like a very strange place to be in. And again, I think like Rebecca was saying was there's now this sense of like, shouldn't I be more activated by these bad things? Shouldn't I feel something more and almost wanting to not be sure if you if this is is this numbness a good thing or is it bad? And I think a lot of people are realizing that in some cases it's bad because it's kind of leading us to be kind of complacent and, you know, Noticing you haven't walked for three days and not really <laughs> being bothered by it is kind of like not a great thing. Um, so I think there is also the sense of numbness I think is going around. And I think finding ways to kind of motivate yourself, connect with other people has been really difficult. We um, we did something very big this past weekend. It was Father's Day. I'm a father. So we um, went on our Father's Day camping trip. And so we drove... Um, well, it should have been a two and a half hour drive, but it took a wrong turn and it ended up being a three and a half hour drive. So the kids were super upset by the time we got there. But we did have a wonderful like two nights out in the woods. And I have to say, like, my wife was really reluctant to go. And at the end of the trip, she's like, wow, I didn't I did not know how much I needed that. Like just getting away, unplugging, being in the middle of nowhere. It just was a really good kind of very therapeutic thing for us and for and you know we got back and as a family we're fighting less we're sort of you know it's 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 refreshed our all in this togetherness that um you know i've been waning honestly have you noticed anything that's kind of refreshed you or helped you get through you know these mundane times these hard times these depressingly boring times so i haven't gone yet but in a similar vein i booked a vacation 
Oh wow! Uh, which I feel like yeah. <laughs> I feel that's like a that's like a monetary risk I'm not ready to take yet. What did what did what did you book? <laughs> well, luckily it's only four weeks away. I booked an Airbnb. I found a house by some water in driving distance for a couple of days that was available, and just decided to go for it. And we were stuck in a little bit of analysis paralysis for a while talking about trying to go away because there is the monetary risk of it, right? right. And there's the risk of not knowing what's going to happen, how we're going to feel that even if we still can go, are we going to feel safe to go? And we had been, we had, we had a kid last summer, so we didn't get a summer vacation last summer. Oh, and wow. we were just like, we have to do this. We have to do this for ourselves. Um, even though it might not work out, we need something to look towards that isn't that isn't work, that isn't the news, that isn't all this hard stuff, but something that is a break to look forward to. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. Will, is there anything you're looking forward to this summer? Are you planning any vacations or how are you keeping hope alive, I guess, during this this time? You know what? I've been like so like numb, I think I forgot about summer. But like hearing both of you talk about being outdoors, I was like, oh, I forgot. Like you can just go out in nature and there's not people there. That's what I'm saying. We totally forgot that too. And then we went out and we were just like, oh my gosh, this was so needed. Do you have, what's your normal like summer vacation routine, Will? So I usually do like um, probably like a big international trip. So I usually do that for a week. And then I usually do like a, some something domestic. So last summer I went to Alaska. Um, oh, for, wow. You know, Amazing. And so like I do one. I'm like, oh, I forgot. I love the outdoors. <laughs> like that's a great idea. Because like I, I think we're right. We're at this point where it's like we're all trying to figure out like what is a acceptable risk. I think me and my partner yesterday were like, is it is it OK to go to a restaurant? They say they're social distancing. But is that is that true? Like, is that worth, is, you know, a good Italian meal worth the risk? And so I think we're all playing this game right now of like, and is, is that even logical? Is that does that make sense? I don't know. And it feels like I totally empathize with what you're saying. It feels like like all these things are happening and I have no idea whether or not they're safe. I mean, I guess part of it is just like the lack of clear guidelines, right? Like we still don't, we don't have a centralized scientific authority telling us what's safe and what's not. And so we have like our governors telling us what's safe. We have our county health um, officers telling us what's safe. But then we know that there's all this political pressure too on them. They're, our governor is not a scientist. He is somebody who is making decisions based on, you know, different types of calculations that aren't always clear to us. And so, yeah, I just feel like so many things. What's risky? What's not? I don't know. I don't know. I think it's hard because there's new information coming out all the time. And sometimes the new information conflicts what we had with the old information. And that's kind of that back and forth feeling that people have, too, of not being able to trust information. And what's inevitable is we have to accept that we're, we're not going to know if tomorrow they're going to come up with some new way that coronavirus is transmitted that we couldn't have possibly known before. And so having to accept that that's going to be an unknowable and still do our best to protect ourselves. Of We know about the airborne stuff. We know about wearing masks. We know outdoor is better and being able to take calculated risk based on what's important too. And maybe it's not about just like, how do I keep risk at minimum for myself, but how do I decide which actions are worth risk? Yeah. And I, I think that's, that's where we're at. I think it's very individualized. I think that's the thing is like, 
people, I don't, I don't know, I'm not sure if people are really thinking about it that way, that you're going to have your own set of circumstances about things that are okay for you and other people are going to have not. I've been reading a lot lately about people who are getting into like mask fights with their family where like they'll, their sister is a non-masker and they are a masker and there'll be an argument over family dinner because one person's like, I'm not taking this off. And the other person's like, you don't trust me, right? It's, it's an issue of like personal differences. Um, and yeah, and we all have to make our own decision. Like I came to a very similar decision about the gym. Like I'm, I just wouldn't feel comfortable going until like there's a vaccine. So like one of the things I've had to do differently is like I've had to like suck it up and do like TV workouts and working out in my living room. Even though I don't really like that, it's just like I've had to accept that that's my limit of risk. I think a gym is going to be way too risky for me. Yeah, I get that. I get that. A lot of it, I mean, we've talked about this on, on the show before. A lot of it is learning to live with uncertainty. We're not going to know. We're getting conflicting information. I think it's worth reprising the advice that we've given before. Can you guys kind of give us the top five, top five tips for learning to live with uncertainty? I don't know if this is the top five tip, but I think it's the overall umbrella, which is that you have to live with uncertainty because there's no other option. You know, that's not making me feel any better, but sure. Okay, (laughs) keep going. (laughs) Well, I say it because we have this idea about certainty and we have this idea of 100 percent certainty being something that we can actually achieve. And we've we've all believed that for a long time. And and the truth of the matter is that that's been a feeling and not a fact. And that, you know, for most of our lives, we feel certain about things, but we actually aren't like I feel certain that I am going to finish work on time and take my dog for a walk before, you know, heading off into childcare tonight. I feel pretty certain about that because I do it every night and my dog would be very upset if I didn't. Do I know 100% that I'm going to do that and there isn't going to be a work thing that comes up? No. And, And that's a really small example. But the truth is we all have these moments of being certain enough that we're willing to move forward with action. If we were waiting for 100% certainty on every single thing before we we took an action, we'd be waiting forever. Yeah, and I, I sorry to piggyback all of it. It's like the reason uncertainty is so difficult is because we don't like that feeling, right? We just don't like it. It feels gross. It feels uncomfortable yeah, sure. to not be certain about something. So the, the important thing to remember is that if it's the feeling that sometimes has to be managed, right? So like, what can we do when we're feeling uncertain? Do I need to take a deep breath? Do I need to walk away from the situation? And just, even though I feel miserable, I'm gonna like learn to tolerate it. And we know of like emotional, uh, when you expose yourself to emotions like that, it's hard to maintain that level of negativity. So after you sat and even wallowed about it for a little bit, you're going to kind of feel better just emotionally because you're not holding it in, you're actually dealing with it. So take a deep breath, meditate, go for a walk, right? And you're gonna say to yourself, I don't have the answer and I don't like it, but I'm going to tolerate this until you know I feel better. Sometimes the question to ask about uncertainty is, if you're not gonna have the full answer, are there parts of the question that you can answer, right? That if you don't know what's gonna happen in a year from now, can you know what's gonna to happen tomorrow with some sense of faith in it? Um, so I think asking yourself, if you don't have all the answers, is there part of an answer that you can answer and take action on rather than only going so far into the future that there's no way to have data on it. All right. So I'm going to try to distill what you guys are saying into actionable steps for me and for other people who might be listening. Okay. So when you're uncertain, when things are uncertain, that feels uncomfortable. It's unsettling. So Will is saying, take a moment. You know, if you're feeling really frustrated or like you can't get around it, just take a moment, take a deep breath, go for a walk, 
get used to that feeling try to incorporate it you know put don't don't push it down but um, get used to it and then when you go back to trying to make that decision or trying to figure that thing out you're coming with a different emotional attitude to it right because you're sort of like sat with it a little bit and you've gotten to know it a little bit is that right I think that's right and then you know when you have that little bit of distance, that's the time to figure out, are there parts that can be problem solved here? Right, are that, there parts that can be answered? And that's that's what you're saying, Rebecca, is maybe instead of looking at one big giant question that may have a lot of uncertainty swirling around it, can you break that down into sort of like smaller decisions, component parts that maybe there's more uncertainty over here, less uncertainty with answering this question. And so maybe you can try to get at a better answer by by breaking it down into steps or breaking it down into component parts. Yep. Cool. I can I can I can use that. As we were talking, that I, I started thinking about like in the first few shows that we were doing when everything was so uncertain, one of the big pieces of advice that helped me was establishing routines. Right? When like our kids were suddenly home and not in school and work was all crazy and I didn't know what was going on. My wife didn't know what was going on. My kids didn't know what was going on. Like we set up like at eight o'clock we do this, at nine o'clock we do this, at ten o'clock we do this. And that really helped everyone. Now it's summer, so we don't have school organizing stuff, but we've we've managed and we figured out new routines. But I think like what one thing that we need to do is like ask ourselves, like, are these routines working for us? Are we bored with these routines? Do we need to switch them up? Because I feel like that's kind of like some other mental weight on us is that the routines might not be working or we may need to tweak them. We may need to look at what we're doing in order to help us to make sure that we're deriving maximum benefit from it. So is it it's the routine routines might not be working because it's Groundhog's Day or the re, routines might not be working because circumstances change. It's summer. We need to switch it up kind of idea. Yeah, I mean, I think all of the above, right? Like it could be Groundhog's Day. We could just be bored with them. Um, they could like be creating anxiety in ways that we're not expecting, you know, I think it's worth just kind of like, like looking at our schedule, looking at the routines that we've established and saying like, is this actually working? Like, like the, for the kids, I know, especially like they don't really have the uh, ability to vocalize when things aren't working and say like, dad, this isn't working for me. Right. They just get cranky or they get upset at people. And so when that starts happening, like really try to figure out like, okay, maybe there's something else going on, then their brother is being a jerk. Yeah. And and that's relationships. And that's, you know, how relationships maintain and grow is that, again, going to that idea of complacency is that it's really easy to set up routines and then just kind of assume that everything's fine with it. And it's about kind of like actively revisiting, actively having the conversation and being curious about how the other person's responding to it, being curious if there are other ways to kind of test out different kinds of ideas, even if something is kind of working just to see like, can we push it further one way or the other? Or is this the situation that has to be working for us now because, you know, trying to push it further might make the whole thing collapse. I think it's it's worth revisiting. And it's I think it's about having the proactive discussion about uh, switching it up and trying new things rather than waiting for it to be reactive of everyone's in total burnout. And that's when you try switching it up. That's a much harder conversation right, to have. Exactly, exactly. I'm learning so much from you guys. This has been, if nothing else, I'm on my way to follow in Will's footsteps and become a, a, psych, a psychologist myself. Well, let's get let's get to some some uh, listeners. Uh, so we got a uh, 
bunch of text messages today. We'll get through. We'll try to get through as many of them as we can. Um, and they're all kind of on the relationships idea. So uh, let me uh, just say a couple things first. Um, as you guys know, we've been packing the show notes with lots of great information, uh, especially as it comes to uh, intersecting with the, like the Black Lives Matter movement and protests that have been happening. And since this is also Pride Month, uh, the show notes last week and this week were highlighting Black trans organizations that are doing a lot of work and could use your support. They're putting out a lot of educational resources for people who want to learn more. Uh, there's uh, one, two, three, four, five different organizations. One is called GLITS. That's an acronym, G-L-I-T-S. There's another called SNAP for Freedom. There's TGI Justice, the Marsha P. Johnson Institute, the Okra Project, and for the GWRLS, which is spelled G-W-O-R-L-S. Uh, and we're going to add the Trevor Project to the list. Uh, they provide lots of resources and access to counselors for LGBTQ youth. Uh, again, just tap the show notes, then you can carry on to their websites and you can consider donating. You can use their resources. Uh, please just check them all out. Okay, and then we get to our disclaimer. Listening to a podcast is not a substitute for getting real help. Uh, pandemic check-in. This show is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical and or mental health advice, diagnosis, or treatment. You should always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified mental health provider with any questions that you may have regarding a medical condition or your mental health needs. Now we have a text message from Monica. So Monica writes to us, um, as a 48-year-old woman currently living with my 23-year-old daughter, I wanted to add the perspective of what it's like for a parent to live with your adult child. We are Mexican, so the notion of living with your children well after college is nothing that we look down on or shame. In fact, it's preferable. I feel that even though we have set hard boundaries together that respect our new relationship, sometimes she treats me like I'm her child. She tries to take charge of the home. It makes me feel obsolete because I'm also an adult and I like the way I have structured my life and I don't need my daughter to do everything for me. Do you have any advice for this kind of conflict? We sort of talked about it this from the uh, last week. We talked about this from the other direction. The kid who was moving in with the parents and needing to set more boundaries. This is the opposite. So this is this is interesting. Yeah, thank you, Monica. I think, first of all, I love your point about like the cultural aspect of it. And that's totally right that in other cultures, children moving home is the accepted, you know, um, is the norm rather than, you know, an exception. We did a little training this morning about um, a DBT technique called Dear Man, in which you can use the acronym of Dear Man to actually help you kind of problem solve. Uh, and just to go through it briefly, it's really you describe what's going on. So use facts. So really be factual about it when you talk to your daughter. Express how you're feeling. So these are words around frustration. Assert what you need. And it sounds like what you need here is I need to feel like an adult. We're both adults now. Our relationship has shifted a little bit, but we both need to feel kind of respected. Uh, you want to reinforce the other person that, yeah, we have set boundaries before. Um, and these are important, but maybe we need to look at a new boundary. Uh, we have success in this area. And then the man is mindfully, so you want to stay on topic. Sometimes these arguments can kind of thinking about past behavior or future behavior, but we really want to stay on topic. Um, you want to be appropriately assertive. So this is important to you. So even if your daughter sometimes makes you feel like it's not that serious, this is something that's important to you. So you need to be really firm about it. 
And the last one is negotiate, right? It sounds like your daughter, you know, by behaving this way, might not be trying to treat you by a child. Maybe she's also trying to act more adult-like and maybe in that way it can kind of make you feel, um, you know, like your feelings hurt. So let's talk about what needs to be negotiated. How can she feel like she's an adult, but you also feel like an adult in this relationship? So if you notice, it was D-E-A-R-M-A-N, dear man. And that's just one way, one technique. And if you look it up on Google or anywhere else, that will really help you kind of frame conflicts like this. We'll put a, just, uh, I know Rebecca, you want to jump in here, but we'll put a um, dear man link on in the show notes so people can check that out. That was actually what I was going to suggest was if we could put a dear man <laughs> something in the show notes. So uh, good imagining what's in my mind, Ben. Um, Just like I'm learning to become a psychologist, you're learning to become a podcast host. Good job, Rebecca. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I think that's great advice from Will. Um, I, I dear man a lot of situations because the thing that can be good about it is that you know, having these kind of confrontations can be really uncomfortable and it's really emotional. And, and when our emotions get high and our discomfort gets high, we can we can lose some of our thoughts and some of uh, the ways we want to articulate things. And so having a plan for it is really great, especially if you can make it really structured and use a, a cutesy, quippy acronym like Dear Man to do so. Um, I'd also wonder about it in terms of, you know, we were talking earlier, just chatting about, you know, the face mask fights over dinner and the family conflicts and about individual choices and how to negotiate amongst them. And I imagine for parents and children who are having to move back in together when it's unexpected of the different interpretations of taking over household tasks and individual choices over them, of wondering about is the daughter also maybe taking over some household tasks to prove her own adulthood? I think that's something that young adults do when they move into the home a lot of trying to show their parents like, hey, I'm grown now, I'm an adult now, I know how to do all the adulting things. And thinking about that for her daughter, and that might be part of the dear man of the negotiate of asking, you know, what's important to you to be able to do in the house? How can we do that give to get? And the way to do that is to find out from the daughter what's important to her about these household tasks. You know, is it an emotional thing? Is it a, I really need to turn all the glasses upside down when I empty them out of the dishwasher? It's my little quirk, you know, whatever. Um, but finding out a little bit from the daughter of, What's going on with her when she's when she's taking over these tasks and making that part of the negotiation? Because the more we can think about the other person's side, the better that, that system goes. That's what I was uh, looking at the ages here. A 23-year-old daughter, I was thinking, oh, so she's probably just back from college. Um, you know, she changed a lot in college. Um, and now she wants to maybe prove herself to her mom or prove herself as an adult and uh, you know, the mom at the same time, I'm sure, like, without even realizing it, maybe she has a little like, oh, this is still my daughter. I still need to take care of her. And so there's like a mismatch of expectations and a, a mismatch of intentions, maybe. Yeah. And I think that that happens a lot, particularly in uh, that kind of age range, like the the young adult. It's um, there are these big, important developmental transition ages, right? Like the first one is toddler, which is trying to kids trying to figure out, like, am I a baby or am I a big kid? And then there's teenager, which is the same thing of am I a baby or am I a big kid, but with bigger kid problems. And then the young adult has that, too, right? Like, am I still a kid or am I an equal in this relationship? And it's that same kind of tension of am I a baby or am I a big kid, but with 
these bigger adult issues and all of the history tied into it. And so so recognizing that tension uh, is important and and parents go through it too during those kind of transitional ages of how hard it is to to watch your baby become a big kid. Yeah, that's something I, I remember um, when my wife and I had our first baby, um, like our separate parents did not react to it the same way. Like some were super ready to become grandparents and others like weren't at all ready to become grandparents. And I was like, oh, this is a developmental phase that they're going through. This is like the grandparent developmental phase. And it just made me think for the first time in my adult life, like, oh, wow, we're still going through you know, even when when we become adults, like there's still plenty of developmental phases that we that we probably go through along, you know, our, the, the, the next like 60 to 80 years of our lives. Uh, Will, anything you want to add to um, to Monica's question? Yeah. And just remember that this is going to be an ongoing negotiation. Right. I think right. we sometimes think like, oh, we set such good boundaries. And now like there's this thing. Yeah, those things are going to keep coming up and keep having dear mans and keep having these negotiations. Maybe even work it into, you know, once a month at dinner. <laughs> right. Let's just talk about how are things going. Right. Let's check into each other. How's your you know, how's living together? And that can just help set up a routine about like a healthy relationship. Yeah, it's not a bad idea. Uh, Okay, our next uh, text message we got is from Elena. Uh, She writes, I am now a graduate from Seattle University. I'm still pretty distraught about not being able to say a proper thank you to the professors and mentors I was lucky enough to cross paths with. Nothing is going as planned, so I'm just trying to keep my head up. I had to make the hard financial decision to move back in with my parents in Southern California. Coming home has always felt like a little bit of a regression. I wasn't able to say goodbye to any of my friends due to social distancing, and it's really been a lonely period when I thought I would be surrounded by family and friends. The only thing really giving me a sense of purpose is the Black Lives Matter movement. I'm waiting a good month until I try to apply to any jobs again. At least rejection is getting easier to deal with. Hmm, my heart goes out to Elena. Yeah, I hear that, and I I think about the concept of, of learned helplessness, which I think a lot of people are going through right now, and Learned helplessness is this concept that one of the things that can often cause um, really depressed mood is this feeling of I keep doing everything that I'm supposed to do and I keep getting a punitive response from the environment, which I think a lot of people are going through that so many people went to school and graduated with good grades and did all the things that they were trying to do and they were met with a pandemic and, you know, they applied for jobs the way they were supposed to and unemployment's at a crazy high right now. And this feeling of nothing I do helps anymore and and the sense of helplessness that comes from that. And I think the part that, that warmed my heart a little bit when I heard this was her talking about the Black Lives Matter movement and about one of the things about learned helplessness and helping overcome it is finding the things that do matter to you, finding your values and finding ways to put them into action, um, especially when there's so much that is beyond your control, but still can sometimes feel like your fault. Yeah. And for, sorry, for me, it's, um, I, I don't, I don't know if this is the best analogy, but like I used to go hiking a ton and like, sometimes I think sometimes we just fall off the trail, right. And we're rolling down the hill and we have to acknowledge that, and that's where that like radical acceptance piece is. It's like, I'm falling right now. The world's not where I want. I'm not doing well. And by naming that and putting a label on that and saying like, yes, I'm 
things are not going well for me. I think that really helps you because it's like, if you imagine if you are rolling down this hill, like you can just give up and splay yourself out while you're rolling. And that's probably not going to be the best as you, you know, dodge rocks and limbs. Or you can kind of think about like, how do I just ball myself up and protect myself so that at the end of this, because it will end at some point, we don't know when that'll be, but at some point things are going to turn around. And when that happens and we're kind of beat up, do we want to be able to stand up and take that step forward or do you want to kind of wallow in that? So as you as we're falling, as all of us are kind of rolling down this hill, it's really think about like, how do we protect ourselves? How do we build up some of those micro skills? It sounds like you have some time and I love that you are finding purpose. And this time can be used if we kind of shift perspective. As you can shift perspectives, this is a time for you to really explore, adjust your values, um, find new interests, find new hobbies, right? We, you, we might not have, well, again, this long stretch of time to do things. And you also really mentioned that, like, those loss of those goodbyes. Um, and this, they're still able to say those goodbyes. Um, you know, a really poignant email, actually sending a personal email, actually, if you really want to even take a step forward from, for some of those friends, Go and get in writing letters. Like, this is like I've been giving a lot of old school advice, like letter writing. Like, it's really sweet to send that favorite professor, that favorite mentor a letter, right? And they're really going to find that meaningful. That's a meaningful activity for you. Um, and that's just something that'll help mark. That's something that people hold on to and can share. And that can help you feel like at least I was able to reach out and connect with this person um, as, as you kind of move forward and kind of can give you a sense of accomplishment. You know, I think that's really, really great advice. Um, I received a letter recently uh, from somebody that was in a podcast that we did, and it was like somebody that we had on as a guest, and it was just just a really, really nice thank you letter, but it was a letter, like typed out, signed, mailed with a stamp, and it's it's sitting here on my desk, and I still look at it, and it's something that makes me feel really, really good. You know, now I will also say that I'd had no idea what to do when I got the letter because I couldn't just hit reply and say, oh, wow, so sweet. <laughs> you know, I had to like, oh, oh, I guess I'm supposed to write a letter back, a little thank you note back. OK, um, but yeah, that's really great advice. I think old school is like a cool way to go right now. Um, I was also thinking as you were talking, Will, about the advice that you just gave, which is, you know, if it feels like she's feeling a lot of uncertainty right now, especially around the job search. Uh, so maybe breaking that down into component parts, right? And saying like, how can we how can we turn like this big heading of job search, get a job? How can we break that down into as many different component parts as possible, right? And then just like work on that a little by little, you know, make a list, start checking them off. You know, maybe some of them are still really big. Like like you can write the resume, you can revise the resume. Where do you send it? That's like a bigger question, but. Um, you know, you can at least kind of start approaching that and maybe wrap your head around it in a subconscious way or just like, you know, come to that decision later. Yeah. And and getting a job is kind of a really big, scary task. Um, and one of the, and it's kind of a big, scary goal because it's very black and white. Right. Like you either have a job or you don't. Right. There's not a lot of gradual process in between. And so sometimes it's also about reframing of saying, you know, that it's not about the goal of getting a job, but saying, am I taking a step towards something today? Am I finding a way to move in a direction towards, you know, continuing my job search, uh, figuring out what I want to be doing, uh, 
anything towards it rather than saying, did I get a job or not? Because that's the kind of goal that gets us really into trouble emotionally as opposed to figuring out directions that we can be moving towards because you can always be moving in a direction. It doesn't have to be, I did it or I, or I didn't. And, and that can be really helpful just in terms of a coping skill. Interesting. Interesting. I mean, I also think like if you have found a sense of purpose somewhere, like lean into that, you know, like, like, and there are lots of ways that you can be part of the Black Lives Matter movement, you know, either as, as a participant or an ally helping organizations, you know, using what skills you have learned in college and just putting those directly to work as a volunteer. Um, I think that there are, you know, if if you are finding purpose and meaning, like, yeah, go for it. You know, really, really lean into that. And who knows? Like, there are plenty of people who've gotten involved in causes that have eventually led to jobs in different places. So it's not necessarily like a waste of time to be doing one thing over over the other. Absolutely. Cool. Well, I know that you guys got to go. We're getting close to the end of the hour. So uh, thanks again, uh, both of you. I want to say thanks to Rebecca Sinclair and to Will Osei, uh, both from Brooklyn Mines. Thanks, guys, for joining this week. Thanks for having us. Yeah, it's a pleasure. I'm going to remind everyone uh, our phone number, 858-255-1770. Again, tap those show notes. It's right there. You can leave us a message with your story or you can text the number. We get a lot of text messages, so that's a good idea, too. Uh, one more time for our disclaimer, listening to a podcast is not a substitute for getting real help. This show is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical and or mental health advice, diagnosis or treatment. You should always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified mental health provider with any questions you may have regarding a mental condition or your mental health needs. And if you need help right now, you can text the crisis text line, text the word HOME, H-O-M-E, to 741741. A crisis counselor will text you right back. You can also call if you want to talk to somebody, 1-800-LIFE-NET, and a crisis counselor will pick up the phone and speak with you. Thanks so much for listening. If you're enjoying the show, finding it useful, please, again, tell your friends and family. Help us get the word out. Uh, Pandemic Check-In is produced by Western Sound and Brooklyn Minds. We'll be back next week. Thanks again.